Welcome on into the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 22 of Off the Course, the podcast where golf course superintendents and other turf heads talk about literally anything other than their work. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, and my guest today is the inimitable Paul Larson. Paul is by day the greenskeeper at Royal St. George's. He was also a bit of a viral sensation earlier this summer after a series of television interviews surrounding the Open. Seems like plenty of golf fans loved his aura, the hair, the shades, the Converse sneakers, the sense of cool during a very big moment, and Paul is cool. Paul is so much more than a greenskeeper, though. He's a world traveler. He's an enormous fan of The Cure. He's a passionate West Ham United supporter. He's a dad, too. His son, Elliot, like many English 11-year-olds, is already a heck of a football player. We talk about all that in this episode of the podcast. I had a blast talking with him. Before any of that, a quick note from the sponsor of Off the Course, AquaAid Solutions. For more than 30 years, AquaAid Solutions has been helping turf managers around the world develop comprehensive agronomic plans to produce healthy, environmentally aware, safe, natural grass playing surfaces. They're proud to deliver best-in-class solutions for management of key elements for a healthy and sustainable plant system. Their solutions include wetting agents, soil surfactants, calcium and potassium products, and worm power turf, all of which help the end user, that's you, optimize his or her agronomic programs. Incorporating AquaAid Solutions technologically advanced active ingredients with cutting-edge equipment technology in IMANS, Frito Cedars, and Seagrow Mobile Grow Systems, turf managers are offered synergistic solutions delivering long-lasting agronomic value, improved aesthetics, and playability. AquaAid Solutions is also the sponsor of our new Turf Heads Guide to Grilling, which encourages industry professionals everywhere, including England, to share glamour shots of food on their grills or serving plates in cooking videos, team bonding shots, recipes, tips, whatever format you want. Just use the hashtag TurfHeadsGrilling and tag GCI Magazine and Solutions for Turf. Solutions number four, Turf. We'll be publishing an insert in our December Turf Heads Takeover issue, and if your recipe is among those that wind up in print, you'll also receive a handsome maple cutting board and be eligible to win a team cookout in 2022. Pretty cool. Now, let's cross the pond, digitally at least, with Paul Larson. Your mother was born in Ireland. Your father was born in the Seychelles. And you were born where? I was born in London. And for the record, my sister was born in Wales. <laughs> so there was four of us and none of us were, uh, were from the same country. And uh, yeah, quite quite mad, really. And uh, we spent a life traveling rounds because uh, my dad had a lot of postings. So we went from Germany to Cyprus to Ireland, England, um, quite an upbringing, really. What did your dad do that you were moving around a lot? Was that military? He was in the army, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we, yeah, 22 years until I was 13. 
So I think I've been to like 13, 14 schools. I know. <laughs> so you're moving around. How did you become a West Ham United fan? And for folks who are not up to speed, like I was not until earlier this year, uh, about the English Premier League, 20 teams, there's relegation currently. Uh, West Ham is in the Premier League. They're one of the top 20 teams in all of England. And right now they're, I think, second in the table, second overall. Seconds, yeah. We just, yeah, we were top until last week. Yeah, it's only new, obviously. But, um, yeah, a good, I supported West Ham from what I remember from the age of five. Um, we always had family that lived in London, so even though we'd travel around, we always would go to London just to see family. Be like a holiday for us, though. And my dad's a Spurs supporter, so we always used to live in North London. Our family was from Haringey. Uh, and I just remember, um, look at the underground stations and I'd see West Ham on there and all the, the sort of teams from London. And we played Birmingham one day. It was on match of the day or something. We'd won 5-0. I was just watching it on my own and it was just a great game of football and obviously the scoreline and everything and I was like oh that's going to be my team kept watching them and uh, I think dad bought me a shirt or something all the kids were Spurs and Arsenal so it was good to be a little bit different and uh, yeah from that moment I supported West Ham and uh, I'm paying the price for it now all them years of misery if they had tied or if they had lost one nil two nil maybe you wouldn't have been yeah and it, it's quite weird because uh, I sort of get on all right with my dad and everything but we'd be uh, we're always we're into the same things but we'd be opposites so we'd never I was never going to support Spurs I don't think so uh, it's a good bit of rivalry um, so it kind of worked and from that moment onwards yeah I, was, I supported I was dead into football. I was a good footballer as a kid. Um, so, yeah. Um, but it was an exciting time watching West Ham back then in the 70s and 80s. We sort of won a few things. Uh, we ain't won anything for, for a fair, fair few years now. So, yeah. They won the... And I've, I've gone into a crash course on, on West Ham the last couple of days since we set this up. They won... Was it the FA Cup in 80? So you were, you were young and yeah. impressionable at that point, right? Yeah, I remember that because uh, I, I had a stomach bug or something and uh, I was ill. So the only time we're, we should be getting all excited, I watched it from my bed. Like. <laughs> um, but it was worth it. I remember 75 was only tiny and we won the FA Cup then. I sort of vaguely remember, I remember my dad bringing me a, a, a trophy, the FA Cup, a yeah, little plastic thing. Um, and that was it, that sealed the deal. Uh, yeah, so it was it was quite exciting as a kid watching it all. And and your son, who is in the room but being very quiet now, also a uh, a West Ham fan. He's he's uh, got his. It's not the the claret and blue; it's the stripes that he's wearing. But he has a he has a shirt on right now. I see. He's got his, it's a West Ham shirt. Yeah, he's got it on. So uh, we we went to watch him last uh, week uh, when they played Leicester at home. We won four one, and he's been quite a few games with me, but. Uh, I said, how many times have you seen us win? Uh, and he said, tonight's the first time I've ever seen us win. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be bringing him to watch what I thought would be easy games. It'd be Bournemouth or Watford and teams like that. And we'd end up losing. And I'd be like, well, that's what it's like being a West Ham fan. You've got to take the lows with the highs. 
but more lows than highs. Um, for years, yeah, we've been all right. So he's, uh, he's he's got something to shout about when he gets to school now. We need whenever you get to the United States next, we need to get you to Cleveland, and you can uh, you can commiserate with uh, miserable Cleveland fans if the Browns don't win the Super Bowl anytime soon. The Indians, the Browns, the Cavs. They've won one championship between them since 1964. So similar boat. I mean, that's the thing. We all live in that uh, hope that we right. get to see that day, don't we? Um, but it's not. Uh, it's more of a bond, isn't it? It's not. Uh, it's not always about the winning and everything. It's it's a social thing. I just love going up there now to watch it, and it's quite funny because we're quite friendly with the the head groundsman up there. Uh, so we meet up with them and everything. So. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, it's great. You know, I was going to save this till the end. It was in my notes, but you brought up, you brought up Dougie. Dougie Robertson is the head groundsman yeah. for West Ham. And he tweeted out just today uh, a link to a bigger posting that he is looking for an assistant groundsman at the West Ham training grounds in, uh, in Ramford. And you quoted that and you, you tweet, tweeted on it without doubt. A dream job and you had the cross tamers icon you've been at you've been at royal st george's for a little more than a decade you have an open under your belt now uh both as an assistant and as as a head groundskeeper is there any position at west ham this one or another one that could get you to to leave and go work for west ham yeah <laughs> oh well question um yeah. do you know what i think oh, that's, a, that's a good question no i don't think uh, i funny enough i did uh, when I left school and everything and college after my A-levels and that, I did train to be a sort of groundsman. So I did do it for a couple of years before I quit and became a postman, actually. Uh, so if I'd have seen that back then, crikey, I would have been there. Um, but I think golf, golf courses is where my expertise is now rather than gold course i think i prefer to just go out there and watch them now but i think if it was 10 20 years ago yeah i'd have been there in a flash there's there's such an an odd uh relationship in the united states between golf course superintendents and especially baseball but also uh football and and uh american football groundskeepers that you bounce back and forth not so much uh sometimes different sides look down on their side what's the relationship like between uh greenskeepers and, and groundskeepers in uh in in uh, the united uh, kingdom and in europe uh, quite uh, that was a good question because uh I've, I've not met so many um but i have gone on a a, a couple of course not courses i went on a summit which has all sorts of people actually um groundsmen head groundsmen uh, cricket groundsman, uh, some rugby pitches and things like that, and the tennis. And it was great to hear their side of the story. I would call it mutual respect uh, because I don't, uh, I know the basics, but I wouldn't know what they do exactly. It's like a cricket pitch. Uh, I've done a bit on the cricket pitch, but not done a lot. So it's it's quite interesting to see uh, the challenges they face, but I just look at it and think it's got to be easier than uh, than what we do as greenkeepers because it's the amount of land and area mm -hmm. that we cover. Uh, we're so sort of dependent on the uh, 
and the weather, if you know what I mean. So it seems, I think it's harder for us, but I think all the jobs have their pressures and we can all um, empathise with each other, the challenges of each job and also how you deal with staff and the pressures of everyone else. So the ones that I've met, uh, I've been very good and I get on well with Dougie, phoned me up just before the open to wish me luck. There's Darren from Spurs, phoned me. Uh, it's quite actually nice to get on with peers from other areas. I don't think, I think it's respect. No one thinks they're better than each other in any kind of way like that, which is quite nice, really. That's tremendous. And, and I feel like we're getting to that point in the US, but it seems like... Uh like all you guys between golf and, and soccer and cricket over there are, are maybe a little bit ahead of the curve than we are here in terms of all getting right. along with each other. Yeah. I mean, the weird thing is we don't, uh, we probably don't mix that often. I don't see them very often, but when we do, we can get on, but it's quite unusual that we would be in each other's company. Uh, just how it is. I think uh, I live on the golf course here. So you kind of get entombed in it a little bit and you can uh, you end up not seeing a lot of people at times. So it is quite nice. We've got a, a turf summit coming up in October where we there is all sorts of people mixing from the cricket, the rugby, football. So that's quite nice, actually. We do hear the challenges from each other, uh, what we're up to. That's excellent. Is that a... Is that a biggest sponsored event in October or no, somebody else? No, it's, uh, it's Turf Business. Um, they're, they're, it's sponsored by quite a few people, but they organise okay. it. Um, the bigger thing, um, they do Harrogate, which is in um, January. It's a bit like the golf show that you have. Mm -hmm. So circling back to West Ham, I promised we would talk mostly about West Ham and not so much about your job. And, and you know, like you said, any interview about your job winds up talking about other things and here we are talking about other things. We wind up talking about your position. Um, you you mentioned earlier how you became a West Ham supporter. That five zero five nil win uh, was it over Burnley. What were some of your your favorite memories? You know, watching the watching the eighty championship when you were sick in bed, getting a little cup in seventy five. But I'm sure there were there were other moments before you went off and did your world travels. Uh, it's funny when we got when we my early proper memories of football. Or after we won the FA Cup, we went into European Cup Winners' Cup uh, the next year. So I remember as a kid watching that, my mum and dad were out, probably not allowed in this day and age, leave the kid indoors, but uh, <laughs> I was a bit older. Uh, and I just remember every time we were getting through, we got through to the final, I'd be banging the wall, come on, West Ham. And as a kid, you, you forget, players probably forget the impact they have on kids of that age and uh, I just remember the excitement of all that and uh, I was quite, they're the earliest memories. And then you get a bit older, um, it got me through school, I remember school can be painful at times can't it, but every Saturday game comes along, I'd be playing the weekends and uh, it just made it, all the games, it just made life go quicker when you're at school for them sort of things and then as life beholds, I end up, uh, I met some girl when I was 18, got engaged, and she lived in Dagenham. So I moved up to Dagenham, which is sort of the home of like West Ham in that area, the East End. 
So um, I had four years of living out there where I'd go to the, a lot of the games each week and uh, that was quite good in the old terraces years ago and uh, you score a goal and you've got that crush where it all gets banned now, it's all seater, but you surge forward 40 yards, surge back 50 yards, the banter. It was a bit of offensive, but good banter in the, in the terraces and everything. Uh, so I had four years of just going away watching them. And um, back then, the idol would have been Frank McAvenny and Cotty then. Then he sort of developed into Julian Dix. And mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's more like the cult thing of us all being united in that sort of way that football brings. And there'd be some guys that just lived for football. Their whole work process was just waiting for that game on a Saturday. Um, and it always was on a Saturday back then, before the Premiership. Uh, so it was quite, yeah, it was a, it was a different way. Uh, and if your work was a bit boring or whatever, and we're all pasties, you get free work back then. That was the excitement for you, was the football. Um, but then I, I kind of went travelling after that in the early 20s. And then when I went round just travelling, working and things like that, the football and stuff like that didn't become important because you're just doing other things. It's quite weird how it all sort of moves about. So you, you outlined your 20s a little bit. There was a great piece uh, right around the time the Open occurred. It was on the Friday. I think you talked with Tony Deere, uh, great uh, displaced Englishman. I think he's out in Washington State now. And your 20s, so you, you, you left school, you were 18, you worked for a couple of years, uh, mowing football pitches for a pittance, you wrote, uh, yeah. or you, you told them you worked as a postman, you traveled the world. My favorite detail, you were in Australia and you helped build a roller coaster? Yeah. What? yeah. So what's that story? I know. So uh, the weird thing is my early 20s, I ended up traveling around Europe and I backpacked around Europe, met quite a lot of Americans and we were all into railing and things, come back. Uh, then took redundancy for the post office. So we're traveling around the world uh, and you go through Asia and everything. You can't work because you're living quite cheaply and there's not much money to be earned. So I arrived in Australia, had no job, uh, done little bits and bobs and ended up getting a job with a friend of mine. And it was only because his mate got the sack and they needed someone to, to help take his place. And that's basically drinking too much and didn't get up for work the next day. So, uh, so we get on this uh, roller coaster and it was, it was called the Python loop. And all it was, was one loop and then gone. It was all over in like 20 seconds. Um, but what you did is we built it and then you run it when everyone comes and pay their money, press the buttons, off they go. Uh, and it would go from town to town or city to city. So I'd go to Melbourne the next week might be in uh, Sydney, then up the coast, uh, up the Gold Coast or whatever. So you just sort of work for 10 days. I could earn quite a bit of money. Then you had a week before the next show and you got a week to travel to get there. But in that time, you're traveling, spending all the money you've got. And right. Living like a backpacker. But yeah, I was scared of heights when I took that job on and you had to sort of walk the loop and everything. Uh, I don't know how we done it, but it's amazing. When you need money, you find ways and you... Uh, sort of get over your fears and everything but it was brilliant we had a great time yeah 
how long did you do that? And and I guess how many times did you have to break down and then put back together yeah. the the loop? I, I can't tell. I can't remember how many times. We, it, it definitely lasted like four months. Uh, and it would be shows. They might only go on for three or four days. I think the longest we did was 10 days in Melbourne. Uh, so... Yeah, four months was a long time then. Yeah. <laughs> all sorts of other jobs. But um, it helped me because there was some, I don't even remember some of the little places we went to that were in the middle of nowhere. But the weekends would be packed where everyone's just come round to come to this, they'd have a show on. It wouldn't be just our ride, there was other rides as well. So sort of like some sort of, uh, I don't know, little shows that they'd have on. Um, so it was, yeah, it was, it was an amazing time. That was one of the best times ever is traveling Australia. It was, Australia's a great place as well. You were in your mid twenties by then? I'd say, yeah, yeah. Okay. Late 20s, yeah. So, did, yeah. Did many of your friends kind of do the same thing? Just kind of leave and, and travel around or, or were you really no. the only one? When I did it, I went with a friend of mine, uh, and we sort of went our separate ways, but ended up meeting in Australia. And then I left Australia uh, to go to New Zealand. So I worked out in New Zealand as well. Uh, and I've never seen that guy since the moment I flew to New Zealand. And he was like one of my best friends back then. It was before mobile phones, Facebook, we've never got in touch since. Just not seen him. Uh, but all my other friends obviously stayed. I was living between London and Folkestone, where I also hang out. Uh, so none of them done it. But you meet loads of people as you travel who then become your friends. So I'm still in touch with a few of them as well. I think I'd have been in touch with so much more if Facebook and we had phones back then. Right. Um, but people give you address, bits of paper and all the rest of it. You travel around so much, you ended up losing them. So there's a lot of people I've met that, I've lost contact with which is a shame but that's how it was he just make new friends each place but my friends back home and I'll tell them all about it I think everyone should go traveling I think they wish they had to come with us at times but um, circumstances are that's how it is sometimes but it was I think by going traveling if you don't if you don't work you don't eat you find a way of making money, you turn your hand to anything. And it's quite stressful sometimes, and traveling through Asia, getting around and all the rest of it. Um, even traveled a bit through America as well on my last journey. Um, it definitely strengthens you uh, psychologically and everything. And with green keeping, it's quite a hard job at times. Um, but just by having all them life experiences, it gets you through anything. Uh, so that so it rounds you. You think you're taking time off, but it's developing you as a person. Um, and I, I always recommend it's a shame with COVID and all this that's going on, because people, the kids should be out there traveling around and just seeing what's out there, because it definitely makes you a better human being. Your son Elliot on the other side of the room is yeah. eleven, so yeah. he's probably seven to twelve years away from maybe being able to do. Something like that. I can't imagine you would have any inhibitions about letting him go travel the world. No, you know what? Uh, 
when he was here for the Open, he, he had his football, he was just running round. I don't even think he thought there was a golf tournament on. So <laughs> I I kind of like him to have his independence. We're trying to grow up. He's quite mature and everything. But if he says I'm going travelling at 18, um, yeah, without a doubt, I'm encouraging him to. But he wants to play for West Ham at 18, so he might have to travel with West Ham. <laughs> there would be worse gigs. There could be. Yeah, let's hope they pay good. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I I am just getting in and I'm following mostly Liverpool because they're easy to follow and a little Everton because they're in the town as well. I'm trying to figure out English soccer this year. But uh, you know, the Liverpool have a uh, young player. I think he's 18, just came back from Blackburn Rovers on loan, who RV Elliott, he's only 18. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. if, if, if we see Elliott Larson on uh, on the West Ham side in about seven years, we'll know that... Uh, you know, there's some teenagers in the Premier League. <laughs> there is. If you're good enough, you can play, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, See, so yeah. What's he playing right now? What's uh, is he is he doing club? Is he what's he involved with? Yeah, um, yeah, he, he plays for a team in Folkestone and does a bit of training with Gilliam, who's uh they're the nearest team to us though in the in the in the leagues. Uh, well they in division one. Division one, so that's quite good. Yeah, so he's doing all right, actually. Excellent. Excellent. Um, before we circle back to you coming back and working and, and getting back into the the kind of the rhythm of having a, a football match every week, you wrapped up in Australia. Were you only down there four months or was there a little bit more uh, than, than that stretch? Uh, when I was there for six months. Okay. Um, but then I went to New Zealand and worked in New Zealand for quite a few months as well uh and then i i did everything and new zealand's a great country as well and hitchhiked all around that whole country um it's safe country it's great fun uh worked for maori out there as well picking kiwi fruit crooning kiwi fruit anything to kiwi fruit i've done it um then i've i ended up uh, in tahiti funny enough and there was uh it was quite a thing because they were doing something with nuclear weapons out there. So loads of people had turned up to protest and everything. So I'm on a plane that was normally half empty, but was absolutely packed. So of everyone thought I was a representative of some government from uh, from England. So I just looked at it a little bit and got myself in a five-star hotel and everything before they realised I had nothing to do with them. Um, I just stayed there for quite a while before I flew to LA and just travelled up the coast to Seattle um, and then made my way across. My uncle lived in Lancaster near Philadelphia, so I flew over to see him there. That was quite good. He lived in a quiet little place uh, near where the Amish people were over there. Uh, he said, oh, do you want to have a cycle around, borrow my bike and um, just explore? I said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I borrowed his bike. I said, have you got a padlock? He said, oh, no, we don't need a padlock around here. No one will need your bike. And I went, well, blimey, I wouldn't cycle around England without a padlock. So anyway, I went cycling. See a little shop or mold place. I thought, oh, no one will chance it. I'll leave the bike out there. I'll go and get something to eat. When I come back, the bike had gone. Of course. 
and I uh, and then I'm like, crikey, I'm miles away and I had to walk back because there's no other phone or anything. You know, I could see him and I'm like, he said, Well, you've been gone hours. I said, Yeah, someone's leaked the bike. <laughs> he said, I can't believe it. It's impossible no one does that. I said, I was literally only in there 10 seconds. I said, I'll take me hours to walk back. Um, that was quite funny. So um uh travelled up to New York and flew back. So it was 18 months, I think, I was away for in the end. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it was great fun. You come back, and again, this is from Tony Deer's story on the fried egg. You worked in a solicitor's office. Was that a was that a temp position, or what was that when you came back? Well, when I come back, I actually worked for the Channel Tunnel, and I, okay. I, I was like an archivist or a records clerk uh, for two years, but it was at the end, so uh, it was coming to an end. So. Uh, it was closing down and everything. So I ended up getting a job for solicitors after that up in London. Uh, I was kind of like records club, paralegal sort of mixed into one. I really enjoyed that job, but it was a bit of a dead end job. So I wasn't going anywhere. I was earning all right money, but not enough to really survive in London or buy a house and anything. Uh, I had a gym next to me office and got on well. It was, I really enjoyed it actually. Um, but I kind of got uh, decided I wouldn't mind moving back down to Folkestone. I've always got this thing where I live in Folkestone, which is about an hour and a half from London, or living in London. Your dad lives in London, your mum lives down in Folkestone, your sister. So, um, where I'd always played golf through all of this, I played golf from a youngster. Um, someone on the golf course there offered me a job as a greenkeeper, £10,000 a year was peanuts, but. I gave up work in the city to go there as a greenkeeper, uh, like a trainee, would have been 30-something, uh, which is quite late and everything, really. If people say, if you ain't made it by 35, you ain't making it. I think things have changed completely. So, um, yeah, I did work for Slipsters. I ended up going there and doing that. And I've been greenkeeping since then. And you worked outside of England as well. You were at a couple of clubs before you got to Royal St. George's, right? I so sort of uh, okay. I worked for a couple of clubs local and then I went to St. George's as an assistant for two years uh, and then I got a job in Australia and I was immigrating um, but at the last minute the visa went wrong something went wrong on the money side and they wouldn't let me in the country so then I'm like oh blimey I've given up my job at George's and uh I can't move to Australia. Um, and then a guy phoned me up and offered me a job as head greenkeeper in Holland. Uh, so I went straight to Holland, didn't even know anything really about the course or where we're going. Just drove out there and ended up staying out there for four years. And I was in charge of a course called uh, Wester Park in Zetermere near uh, Den Haag, The Hague. Um, and that was a challenge. That was something else. Uh, so it was great living. Holland's a great country as well. So, yeah. And then you come back, and if I'm doing the math right, uh, when you come back to Royal St. George's, Elliot was even a year old. So this is clearly yeah, a, a different right. chapter of your life here. Yeah. So come back in 2011 for the last Open uh, as deputy then. Uh, and it's quite weird. And then Graham, who was the boss, uh, got a bit ill. So we swapped roles in 2012. And, uh, and I've been here ever since. 
And the weird thing, and I think I was saying to you earlier, um, where life, I just lived life before, before I was come to George's in 11, it was just I'd do what I do. Uh, we travel the world, we go here, we go, I traveled Britain, just go places for weekends and do all sorts and live the charmed life, if you, you know what I mean? And, uh, but I think I was always ambitious, but I hadn't found the right role. And uh, so Holland was great for me to, to succeed out there. It's quite tough when I first went there. Um, you have to win everyone over. And the Dutch, uh, I quite like them because they're quite opinionated people. Um, and you hear about the football and how they can all fall out of each other. And it's dead true, but if they got something to say, they'll say it. Um, but if they believe in you, then it's great. And uh, I've struck up some great friendships and it was, it was a roller coaster ride, but I absolutely loved it. Um, but put, had to put everything into it. And then it's almost carried on here at George's where sort of my focus has been more work uh, than ever before. I don't go out so much. I still have the odd nights out and you have to have the occasions. It's just quite fun. I've got a great bunch of lads and seeing how they do. And we've got a few youngsters, you know, and they like a drink and go out and have a party or whatever. And you think, yeah, I was worse than that when I was their age. So <laughs> <laughs> it's quite good that they still do the job at that age and come into work. I don't think I could do this job if I was 20 uh, because I wouldn't want to work weekends back then because that was for going out. So it's quite a hard job to do at times um, but it's got to be right for where you are as a person and it's worked out well for me at this age to do this because I don't mind working now so much because I feel like I could write books and all my traveling stories and all the rest of it. Well when you were going through everything uh, just the the chronology of it I was thinking Paul you should write a book so have you, is that going to be the next project at some point? as my ambition in life okay just write a book and then when i think about how many books i could write it's almost i could almost write a book just from 2012 about this open and what went on or even in the last two years um but then i've got all the traveling i've done and moving houses and schools from growing up as a kid uh so i want to sit on an island one day just take six months out and just write a book uh, hopefully I'm not too old before I do that. You know, I had all these notes about uh, West Ham, the 1923 White Horse final, first match ever in Wembley, 1966 team in England and Bobby Moore. We didn't even get to it. And I'm not even upset because what you shared was much better than that. So <laughs> and we haven't even said anything about the cure yet, have we? Um, no, we haven't even brought up the cure who you've seen 20 times and you're friends with the tribute band. Yeah, exactly. And um, it's funny with the uh, 966, because even Elliot here, if they say, what did West Ham win? It's like, well, we've won this, but we won the World Cup in 66 and we scored the goals. We had the captain. So that's our little signature tune that we never, we always make sure everyone knows. Uh, so yeah, and then the Cure, um, it's quite funny. Years ago, I went to a Cure tribute band called Le Cure, they're called. What a cool name. And uh, you're quite friendly with them, so I try and watch them. Funny enough, they've been in some tribute festivals the last few weeks, but I've been busy and I haven't had a chance to go and see them, so I'm a bit disappointed. 
But I think I'm going to have a birthday next year. I'm going to try and get him down here to play oh. his part of my birthday party. Um, but yeah, the cure, everyone asks me about cure. And it's like, um, that's the other thing. I was into the dark side of the 80s, you could say. So I love Echo Nabani and his sister Mercies and all that sort of bands. Uh, and then I've gone out with some girls that are into heavy metal. And so I've sort of edged a bit into that. Um, but that's what gives you the individuality. To me, it's not been obsessive about the Cure's music as such. I love it. Um, but it's just what I admire about them is you do things how you want to do it. Um, so don't change for anyone. Um, you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. But do it, try and do it on your terms if you can. Uh, and the style and big hair but I've had about a thousand haircuts sometimes it looks like Robert Smith sometimes it looks like <laughs> it's been shaved off and I look like someone from the clash or something so it's just how you feel just do it but at the moment I seem to have settled for the big hair um, <laughs> and, and then I'm lucky and Elliot loves a cure don't you mate and the clash and uh, I don't know if I'm bringing him down that path but he makes his own mind up but we sit in the car and he tells me whether that's a good Cure album or a bad Cure album. So, At 11. <laughs> uh, 11. I mean, so he's, in, he's got mad hair into the Cure, loves football so gotta be happy. He's alright. Yeah, He's definitely. All right. The uh, the Cure tribute band, Le Cure, are those the folks who are in your, uh, your Twitter avatar with you? They are, yeah. yeah okay. They are. Um, and Henry's also my best mate is, uh, is the black guy that's in there he I met him as a postie in 89 oh man uh, we've been best friends ever since but we're there sort of best friends where we might only see each other once a year uh, but it's like we've never been away we just get we ain't got enough time to tell each other what we've been up to but I brought him down to the open and come and visited and uh, he says I've never been to a golf course before he goes, oh, I'm telling my mates, I'm, I'm going to George's, watch the open. They're like, blimey, how'd you get a ticket? <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah, and there he was. So, so he was with us. So, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I've seen him a few times. And uh, do you know what? Same with going to a Cure concert. It's not just about the music. It's, it's about who you meet there. And it's a day out with people that you've got something in common with. And it's just good fun. It's, you make an event of it. So that's how I look at it now. Paul Larson, you need to write your book. I would read it. I would order a couple copies at least. Uh, if you ever need a, uh, folks that, to help you get through some chapters, I know Guy and I would be happy to read over and, and go over notes and, and help you build structure if you need it. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. You never know. I, I definitely will be doing it. So I might be calling you up one day. Yeah. And if we see uh, Elliot Larson in the premiership in, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years, uh, you heard him here first. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Excellent. Well, Paul, thank you so much. And uh, good luck with everything else uh, on the course this season and uh, and to West Ham this season at the top of the table right near it right now. So, yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Cheers. My thanks again to Paul Larson for taking some time to step off the course, and my thanks to all of you for listening to all the podcasts on the Superintendent Radio Network. New episodes of Beyond the Page, Greens with Envy, Off the Course, and Tartan Talks right here 
just about every Tuesday. Our September issue will be online this week with my cover story about Riviera Director of Agronomy P.J. Salter and his turf team and family, plus stories about how California legislation could close some courses, dealing with damage from our four-legged friends, that's wild animals, not coarse dogs, and more. Check it out online at www.golfcourseindustry.com slash magazine. The physical copy of the magazine will be in your real mailbox, not your digital inbox, uh, a little later this month as well. You can read more industry news and notes in our fast and firm email newsletter. That's delivered every Tuesday only to your digital inbox, not your actual real mailbox. A little different there. Sign up online at www.golfcourseindustry.com under the subscribe tab. Golf Course Industry is produced by, oh, hey, the credits are back, Guy Cipriano and me, Matt Lowell. Our columnists are wonderful Terry Buchan, Henry DeLozier, Bradley S. Klein, Tim Morgan, and Matthew Morton. We have a bunch of fantastic regular contributors to Tyler Bloom, Trent Bouts, Lee Carr, Ron Furlong, Judd Spicer, John Torciello, Anthony Williams, and Rick Wolfel. Our publisher is Dave Zai. Our sales team is Russ Warner and Andrew Hatfield. Jim Blaney designs the magazine. Caitlin Sellers makes sure everything goes where it should. Avil Braden and Christina Warner make sure you all receive the magazine. Kelly Antle makes sure we all get paid. That's important. Michaela Dodrell handles advertising and production. Irene Sweeney does more than anybody in this building can ever keep straight. Anna Kolar, Cody Minnick, Tom Bauman, and Patrick Briand are our IT team. They are incredibly important. And Patrick just sent his daughter off to college. Patrick, congratulations, you're a Bobcat family now. Our president is Chris Foster. Above all else, we couldn't do what we do without you. Thanks so much for listening.